Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, tonight, we've reached uh, well into chapter 3 of Romans, and I'm going to read to you first from the third chapter, verses 21 through 31. Listen to the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified by this grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. There are some very interesting and important themes in these verses that I just shared with you. It has to do with the way, they have to do with the way of salvation. And they have to do with the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, always very vital issues. And there are many issue, other issues that can be mixed in with those, but those are two that at least stood out to me. And so we see how these are um, worked out in these verses. There's been a fair amount of discussion. I mean, I've shared with you some previous verses and discussion about the righteousness of God. And again, that comes up. Right at the beginning, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is a vital sentence all by itself. There are many ways in which people have dealt with the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. You know, where is salvation and grace seen in the Old Testament? and of the New Testament. And in order to get a proper idea of what Paul was saying, and therefore what we should believe, because he was, after all, the apostle called by God, 
we need to consider a couple of, well, present day errors that nonetheless also, well, one of them is relatively recent. The other one goes back a long way, but it's still held to this day. And I'll just go over them very briefly. There are Christians of good intentions and love for the Jewish people who want the Old Covenant to matter as much as the New Covenant. In other words, it will have the same effect apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, you call them dispensationalists, and there was a certain dispensation in the time of Moses. And so therefore, if the people then kept the covenant, kept to the law, they were saved. That was the dispensation. And a new dispensation came with the coming of Jesus Christ. So they would posit that there are actually separate covenants. There are two covenants in the Old Testament and the New, and they're both equally salvific. And so that is, just hold on to that for a moment, that is one kind of error in teaching that crops up. And again, dispensationalism is a relatively new sort of teaching. And it's not something that we hold to as Presbyterians, but a lot of Christians do. Uh, it is a very popular teaching. So there's dispensationalism. And then the other teaching that I would say is an error is Marcionism. And that, of course, goes back much, much further than dispensationalism. It goes back to the second century the leading church figure Marcion, who found much of the Old Testament bizarre and offensive. And so he came up with, well, his own Bible. He discarded the entire New Testament, I'm sorry, the entire Old Testament, and a good chunk of the New Testament as well. And he preserved the letters of Paul as being the authentic, part of the authentic Bible, but he even went in there and excised anything that would seem to call people back to Israel in any way, because he considered that to be something that people added in later. Now, in short, Marcion totally rejected the Old Covenant, the witness of the Old Testament. He considered the God that was portrayed in the Old Testament to be a bad God, an evil God, and he wanted nothing to do with him. The God of grace and mercy and light was in the New Testament only, and not even all of the New Testament at that. And again, while Marcion is an ancient her Marcionism is an ancient heresy, nonetheless, it is still quite prevalent today. Not quite as explicitly, perhaps, but I think all of us can probably think of various attempts to excise parts of the Bible that are offensive to current sensibilities and ideals. There is a, I think in the popular culture, there's often a thought that the God of grace and love and mercy is in the New Testament and the judgmental harsh God is in the Old Testament. Now, the Testaments themselves don't actually really show that. It may seem that there is more of an emphasis on grace and mercy in the New Testament and more on judgment in the Old Testament, but conversely, grace and mercy and salvation are present in the Old Testament and judgment and destruction is also present in the New Testament, if we understand them correctly. If we don't just take a few verses out and proof text either Testament. And going further than that, though, 
we know about various academic studies that purport to show that some parts of the Bible are not really, they don't really belong in the Bible. They're not, or in other things that aren't in the Bible should be in the Bible. Um, if I, I mean, there's so much heresy over the years, you can't keep track of all of it, but a couple of things stick out in my mind today. There is the work of the Jesus Seminar, which quite explicitly seeks to excise certain sayings of Jesus, which they judge to be inauthentic. So they, you know, they cut and paste and slash through the Bible quite happily, even the very words of Jesus Christ. And then there is this kind of, hmm, how can I put it? I'm, I'm trying to come up with the right words. This sort of, I don't know, I consider it a juvenile fascination with heretical documents like the Gospel of Thomas. That comes up a lot. And how the Gospel of Thomas should really be in the Bible. So this whole lack of respect for the Bible as it is, is a current problem as well. And Paul would argue, of course, quite strongly against either of these heresies, either the heresy of dispensationalism or the heresy of Marcionism, including the way it is put into effect today. So what then is the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. They're not identical, obviously, and yet they're not entirely different either. Uh, one of the resources that I've been consulting periodically in my preparation of these messages um, is the wonderful expositional commentary of Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he did a wonderful commentary on Romans, a big two-volume I have a two-volume set. I think it was originally meant to be four volumes. And Donald Gray Barnhouse had been the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia uh, several decades ago. And he does look at the changes and recognizes the changes between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But he shows what is in common in a really effective way. And I'd like to share with you just this paragraph that he writes about how it is in common because it has implications for us today too. And he says, in recognizing these changes, we must never fall into the error of believing that man was ever saved in any other way than that which is set forth through Christ. Moses was saved by looking forward to Christ just as we are saved in looking backward to Christ. We are quite in accord with those who condemn the idea that there is any method of salvation apart from the faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The men of the Old Testament were saved by believing God's word about the substitutionary sacrifice which was slain on the altar. It was a picture of the death of Christ the Savior, and God counted their faith, no matter how uninformed it might have been, for the righteousness which they did not have in themselves. On down into the future, to the end of time, God will save men still on the basis of faith in the grace manifested when Christ gave his life for us on the cross. And so, Christ has always been the Savior. He was the Savior even in the time of the Old Testament 
when the great men of the faith, the great leaders of the faith like Moses and like the other prophets and patriarchs did not explicitly know Christ. And yet the sacrificial system and the law that God set up, as Paul writes, pointed people towards the sacrifice to come. And so God's mercy and grace is shown in the way that he interacted with his people in the Old Testament. He did give them a foretaste of what was to come, and he gave them what they needed to know then in order to come to a saving faith. And now, thousands of years later, God continues to show his grace and mercy to us in that he works in our hearts and convicts us of the truth that is set out in the Bible, in the Old and New Testaments. You know, uh, people in every age have had a certain advantage, I guess, a special advantage given by God. Moses and others in the Old Testament had a certain advantage to us in that it seems it happened much more often that God would speak directly to them in an unmistakable way. Moses heard God speaking to him from the burning bush, for example. Other prophets heard God speak to them. And... By and large, I don't get the sense that that kind of thing happens very much nowadays. So that is to their advantage, but to our advantage is the fact that we have the whole Bible. We have everything. Everything has been written down for us, for our edification, for our growth, to convict us of our sins, to bring us to repentance, and show us the way to salvation. So that is our great advantage, too, and it will last until the second coming of Christ. Now, the righteousness, I want to turn briefly to verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And for Paul to say there is no distinction is very important because that means there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in that context. And I think we know that already. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so, for those Jews who were holding on to their law and the customs and the rituals of the faith that God had already given them, they and themselves could not save. And for us who are Christians today, we have to be just as aware that the various rituals and sacraments of our faith cannot in themselves save either. The important thing is to have faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we look at the brief history of sinning and falling short of the glory of God, well, we know it has an historic cosmic dimension to it in that Adam, the first man, sinned and fell short of the glory of God. He fell short of the perfection of God. He fell short of the teachings of God, the standards of God. He fell short in his praise and trust of God, his worship of God. And of course, the first woman, Eve, fell short in those ways as well. And so, we all have been infected by that sin. We know that people commit sins today, of course. 
And the proper order in which to think about sin and sinfulness and committing sins is this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And so we are sinners from, well, the moment of our conception, astonishing as that is, before we can do any sinful action. We are sinners. And Paul emphasizes that. And of course, we all fall short of the glory of God in the way that Adam and Eve did. So what is the solution? All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And again, we know this. Christ Jesus is our redemption. Faith in Jesus Christ brings us to salvation. That is the only way to be saved. We know that. And here comes verse 25. Whom God, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. And there's a lot that can be said in that verse. It is such an important verse. And again, it brings, it brings up a point of controversy in the church today. The propitiation of sins by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is not a universally popular or accepted doctrine today in the church. The idea seems primitive. Again, there's a little touch of Marcionism there. That God would demand a blood sacrifice for the propitiation of sins. Instead of simply forgiving our sins without that sacrifice. And believe me, I heard plenty of opposition to the traditional teaching when I was at seminary. I hear it in church circles today. But nonetheless, it is my conviction, and I think it is your conviction as well, that the Bible very clearly says that propitiation of sin comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Reference is also here made to the righteousness of God because of his divine forbearance in passing over former sins. And so what does that mean? Well, there is reference made there to Exodus, passing over. And we all know the story of Exodus about how the people of Israel held in slavery in Egypt were commanded to put blood on the the doorposts, the lintels of their houses, so that the spirit, the angel of death, would pass over them as the angel went to take the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And it was through that blood sacrifice from perfect spotless lambs that the people of Israel were able to undergo their exodus and be led away from slavery in Egypt and towards redemption in the land of Israel. And today we are, we are offered a much greater exodus in that we are going to be led away from slavery to sin, our captivity to sin, our helplessness in the face of sin, and led to the promised redemption in Jesus Christ our Lord and an eternity with God. Also in the Old Testament, the theme of blood sacrifice was quite prevalent. I've made reference before to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that is especially emphasized in the book of Leviticus. 
And again, it was a temporary, a kind of a stopgap. It was not something that would be effective once and for all. So that's why they had to keep doing the, the priests had to keep doing the sacrifices over and over and over again. They had to keep throwing the blood of unspotted animals, of pure animals, against the altar, and they had to sprinkle it over the people in order for it to have any effect. There was no way that it could be performed once and last forever. But again, we then see both the similarity and the difference between the Old and New Testaments because Jesus Christ shed his blood once, a once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And all that we have to do, we don't have to slaughter a goat, we don't have to slaughter a lamb or a chicken or anything like that. We simply have to accept the grace of God through faith in God and what Jesus Christ did for us. And indeed, as Paul writes in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, Paul, of course, is referring to the present time as his time, but his words matter just as much for us today. God will indeed justify whoever has faith in Jesus Christ. And to justify means to save. It means to forgive our sins. And it means even to do more than that in a way. We think of, the, we think of forgiveness. Forgiveness is good. Jesus tells us to forgive our enemies. And so we should. We should forgive people who wrong us. But consider that the forgiveness of God has another dimension to it. And I picked this up again from reading Barnhouse. I'm not going to give a direct quote, but what Barnhouse pointed out is this. Say there is someone who has wronged us. We've talked about, well, we talked about bank robbery. Say that somebody steals money from you. It may even be an armed robbery. And that person is apprehended and sent to jail. And you forgive the person. You say, you know, okay, I am not going to hold it against you that you did that. I forgive you. I am not going to be resentful against you. I am not going to plot harm against you or anything like that. But that person is still in jail. That person still needs to pay the penalty of breaking the law, of contravening the law. And so our human forgiveness is very important, but it only goes so far. There are some things that it cannot fix. But when God forgives, it's as if the prisoner in the cell has been released. The law itself, the punishment called for by the law has been satisfied by another means. And again, that is through the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. And so what a wonderful thing it is to have the forgiveness of God and to be justified by grace through faith. Paul then asks, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And so no one is in a position to boast. We are like the criminal in jail who is being graciously released because somebody else is paying the penalty for our crimes and our transgressions. How can we boast? In such a circumstance. And our boasting is excluded, though not by the law as it was set out to Moses, 
but rather by the law of faith. Having faith in God, having faith in Jesus Christ, in his goodness and mercy, and also in his power and his right, his right to judge us, that will preclude boasting. There is no room for boasting at the foot of the cross. And so Paul again writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And what this means is that whoever, whichever community you belong to, whether you were ancestrally a Jew or ancestrally a Gentile, you are justified by faith. Period. That's it. Justified by faith. Now, of course, Paul will develop that thought. It doesn't mean that you simply, if you are justified by faith, it doesn't mean you can go out and willingly contravene the law. No. But you are not saved by the law of God. You are saved by faith in the saving God. God is, after all, not the God of the Jews only, as Paul says. God is the God of the Gentiles as well. Yes, of Gentiles also. And after all, God is one, and he will justify the circumcised by faith and also the uncircumcised through faith. And indeed, we do not overthrow the law by this faith. Paul asks rhetorically, do we overthrow the law? No, we do not. We indeed uphold the law. What that means is, I think, is that God has created everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, whatever race we are, whatever nation we belong to, whatever our position in life, our gender, anything. God has created all of us. And God has a plan for all of us. It was of vital importance that God chose the Jews to be the keepers of the Old Covenant. It was amazing that God preserved his oracles through them. We talked about this last week. And yet God is not the God of the Jews only. The Jews were a witness to the law and grace of God. But the law of God, and more importantly, the grace of God is available for all people. And it will save people from every nation. That is how I would interpret it. There are some who interpret that in a universalistic way, meaning that all people will eventually be saved. And certainly there are parts of Scripture, parts of Paul's writings that would seem to support that. But if we look at the entire scriptural witness, I think there is too much in there, too much in the Bible, that indicates that not everyone will be saved. But nonetheless, people from every nation shall be saved. And that is what Paul is getting at. And that was an amazingly inclusive and grace-filled message for his time. And indeed, it remains one for this time. The righteousness of God shall be fulfilled. The judgment of God shall be fulfilled. The grace of God shall be fulfilled. And it shall be fulfilled in our lives by faith. And that faith itself is a gift from God, not something that we can construct to reach God, but something by which God graciously reaches down to us in order to lift us up. Thanks be to God for the gift of his grace. 
Amen.